We return to our series, The Jesus Life and Invitation, and we, or the purpose behind this series is to look at the life that Jesus offers, to look at the life that Jesus lived, and to understand that as people who seek to follow him, in fact, whether people are following him or not, Jesus invites every one of us into this life. And so the purpose of the series is to look over the several weeks that we're together at how Jesus actually approached life. What does it mean to live the Jesus life? What does it mean when, when we throw around things like, what would Jesus do? What do we really mean by that? Because I'd like, particularly in the light of this morning's message, I would like to suggest to you that sometimes answering that question, what would Jesus do? One, it's not that easy to answer. And two, it actually could be very, very, make you feel very, very uncomfortable. And I really hope, it sounds bad, doesn't it? But I really hope that this message morning, the, the morning message today makes you uncomfortable. I think it's going to. We're going to talk about Jesus and emotions. How did Jesus do emotions? We're looking at it this week and next week. And over the time together that we have on this subject, we're going to be looking at the way in which Jesus processed both negative and positive emotions. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that we have such a wonderful example in how to live life in your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to this wonderful person of Jesus. We know he's wonderful. We know he saved our souls. We know he died for our sin. But we also, as we read the scriptures, we see here so clearly that he lived out humanity as you intended it to be. And so I pray this morning that you will help us to grow in our understanding of what that means, what it means to live a truly human life in submission to you. And I pray that you would encourage us to embrace more of the Jesus life this morning. And we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. I've called the message this morning, as I said, Jesus and emotions. Let me introduce you to this man. Uh, This, if you didn't know, is Bruce Banner. Now, a number of you will know who Bruce Banner is. He's not a real person. He's a fictitious person for those of you who think he's a real person. That's actually Mark Ruffalo, the actor who plays Bruce Banner. Most of you know who Bruce Banner is, I hope. Uh, That's sort of 50-50. For those of you who don't, Bruce Banner is a character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's a superhero. He doesn't look very super and he doesn't look like much of a hero, does he? No, he doesn't. Here's the thing about Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner has a problem and... People from time to time like to sort of have a go at Bruce and they try to get him angry and when he feels himself starting to flare up, he has his famous quote, he says to people, you wouldn't like me, you don't want to make me angry, you wouldn't like me if I was angry. And here's the reason why, because if you get Bruce Banner angry, this is what happens. So, now you're all enlightened. For those of you who aren't familiar with Marvel, that's the Incredible Hulk. Bruce Banner, when he gets angry, this is his problem and he tries to keep the anger in. If you prod and poke him too much, he turns into the Hulk and the Hulk has only a two-word vocabulary and it goes like this, Hulk smash! When the Hulk gets angry, it's bad for everybody. He smashes buildings, he hurts people. He loses it. My son and I have this little 
banter going between us when we watch the scene where the Hulk really just loses it and we both say to each other, wouldn't you like to just have two minutes to be able to do that? Just vent it all. If you watch the movie and then you come back and you remember that story, you'll think, oh boy, what sort of pastor have we got? So, Bruce Banner works initially because he has this beast within him that's always simmering beneath the surface and wanting to get out. And because he's afraid of the damage the Hulk will do, Bruce tries to keep a lid on it and he just keeps the anger stuffed down. But there comes a remarkable moment because it would seem the only way he can transform into the Hulk is when he really gets angry and loses it. And then it gets really bad. But then there comes this wonderful moment when they need the Hulk to come and do something to rescue them from the bad guys. And the other heroes who are gathered around him, they, they look at Bruce and they said, but wait a minute, aren't you going to get angry first? And he turns to them and he says, that's my secret. This is a brilliant line, that's my secret. I'm always angry. And then he just transforms into the Hulk without having to lose it. And it's a brilliant line because what it's telling you is that he's learned how to process his anger. And he's learned how to be able to transform into the Hulk when needed to actually do good and use his anger in a positive way. Some of you are probably sitting there and you've just heard me say, use your anger in a positive way. And you're thinking, our pastor has lost his marbles this morning. Well, I want to bring you to the life of Jesus in John chapter 2. And as I said, I think this message is going to make you uncomfortable. The first point that I want to talk about is Jesus. Now, look what I've put. Jesus clears the temple. I've put it in inverted commas, Jesus clears the temple, because that's what most Bible translations head this up when you come to this passage. So, for example, in some translations, it's called Jesus clears the temple. Or in the translation I'm using, it says uh, cleansing the temple. And it's all so very subdued. What do they mean by Jesus clears the temple? Ah, oh, it's a bit messy in here. Just, let's tidy up a bit. Let's, let's just you know, put things where they belong. Or Jesus cleanses the temple. And you imagine that Jesus comes with a bucket and mop and disinfectant and starts cleaning out the temple. It's all so sanitary. It's all so neat and tidy. I wonder why our Bible translations don't head this up as Jesus loses it. Or Jesus does his nana. That's an old Australian expression. Or Jesus vents his spleen. Or even angry Jesus drives out the rip-off merchants. Why don't we put it in those terms? Cleansing the temple, clearing the temple. It's all so sanitary, it's all so clean. Well, let's have a look at the catalyst for what's going on here. Let's, let's consider for a moment what was the catalyst at this particular point. We read in verse 13, if you've got your Bibles or reading devices, have a look. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. This is the catalyst. Jesus comes to the temple. Imagine this scenario. He comes to the temple and the specific part of the temple that he's in, because you could actually read that as saying not uh, the temple proper, which was right in the middle of the temple area, you could read this as the temple precinct. And so Jesus, at this point, at Passover, has come into the precinct of the temple, and specifically he is in the court of the Gentiles. Now, the way in which the temple was structured was it was, you kind of got deeper and deeper as you went in. So you had the court of the Gentiles. That is where Gentiles were allowed to worship. They could go no further into the temple. 
They could go as far as the court of the Gentiles, but because they were Gentiles, that was it. Then you could move into the court of the women, so women could go into that court. And then beyond that, that that is uh, Jewish women, and then beyond that you had the court of Israel where only Jewish men could go. And then after that it was the priest's area, uh, and so it got progressively smaller about who could go in. Here's the significant thing. Jesus comes to the court of the Gentiles, and what he discovers set up in the court of the Gentiles is a marketplace. And you have to understand that this was perfectly okay. It was perfectly okay for this reason. You see... The purpose of going to the temple was to uh, give your offerings and also to uh, provide sacrifices for various various, uh, Jewish religious law. And imagine, the the text tells us, if you have a look back there in chapter 12, uh, verse 12 of John 2, it says, After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. So Capernaum is in the north, the temple is in Jerusalem in the south. By foot, it's around about 160 plus kilometres from Capernaum down to uh, Jerusalem. So imagine that you are a pilgrim coming from the north of Israel and you are wanting to go to the temple to offer your sacrifice. Can you imagine the journey with two or three kids and dragging along an animal for sacrifice on foot? Can you imagine that? You'd be hearing... Are we there yet? And the sheep would be going, are we there yet? You can imagine it. What a journey. Not only to take your family down to the temple to fulfil Jewish law, but to actually drag along the sacrifice. And you ran the risk that when you got down there in Jerusalem, you ran the risk of presenting this animal for sacrifice and the priests look at it and this thing's got its tail half hanging off and its eyes hanging out because of the journey it's been so horrible they'd probably run the risk of the priest saying that's not suitable for God you can't offer that so the Jews had a simple solution and that solution was they set up a market in the court of the Gentiles where you could come and with your money buy the sacrifice that you would then take into the temple makes sense doesn't it and it was perfectly okay The money changes are there as well because only certain coins could be given as an offering. And so if you were a Gentile and you came with certain Gentile coins, you would come into the temple precinct and you would take your money and then you would exchange it for the money that was allowed to go into the offering. So this is the catalyst. Jesus comes into the temple, imagine the scene, and there is this marketplace. Understand this, it's okay for them to be there. Well, in the sense that they, the trade that they were applying was perfectly acceptable. It made good sense. But now we come to the response of Jesus. So the catalyst is the marketplace in the court of the Gentiles. Here is the response of Jesus. Look at verse 15. He made a scourge of cords. It was a whip or a lash made out of ropes. There's very specific terms that are used here in this passage. Uh, There would have been ropes, plenty of ropes around that had tied up animals. He would have gathered these together. Uh, Think about this. It says that he made this whip or this cord. So there's a premeditation here. It's not like he just happened to see, oh, there's a whip over there, I'll use that. It actually says he made this whip, this premeditation. Think about that. Uh, So he makes the, the scourge of cords. We read then that it says, look at the word. Uh, in verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple. The word means to throw out. 
This is not a, come on, get along, get along. He's fair into it. He casts them out. And notice, it's not just the animals that he's driving out. Look what it says in verse 14. It says there that you've got the oxen, sheep, doves, and the money changers. We come down to verse 15. He drove them all out of the temple. Not just the animals, but it's... Imagine this. This is people. Jesus is driving people out. What does this do of your image of Jesus? Are you feeling just a little bit uncomfortable? It gets even better. It says that he poured out the bowls or the coins. Look at verse 15. He poured out the corn, coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. The pouring out means that he got the bowls and he spilled them out everywhere, tipped them up. It says he overturned the tables. That actually means to upset. It's actually used of a person who emotionally upsets you, uh, overturns your emotions because of their behaviour. So it's a really strong, violent word. It's not a tame or passive word. There are connotations here of violence. And notice what he says. Take these things away. Uh, The word take has with it the connotation of don't just try, make it happen. Get this stuff out of here, is what Jesus says, if you want to paraphrase it. And then it goes on and he says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice what he's saying there is, he's not saying, would you please just stop doing this for the time being. It's stop it for now and forever. Put an end to it. Very strong language. Charged with emotion. A physically violent response that's reflected in the actions and speech of Jesus this is how I think it looked I really wanted to fill this bowl up with coins but this is I've just got paper in here just imagine that's coins but it's like this and then he gets a table and it's over like that have you ever seen that before I'm not talking about in church can you imagine I want, I want you to see this. That if Jesus came into our church and did that, we would think he was a lunatic. Or if anybody did that in church, you've probably got questions about me right now. Um, but that's the force of it. And he didn't just do it once. And then he drove them out of the temple. Jesus clears the temple. He cleanses it. You have to understand that this was highly offensive to the worshippers who were there at that moment. Highly offensive. In fact, it's been suggested that it was such an affront to the Jews. We, there's, there's a little snippet in Mark's Gospel, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel in Jesus' ministry, that a delegation, it mentions a delegation of Pharisees and religious leaders went back to Galilee to see Jesus, to investigate him. And the suggestion is, because there's no real reason given in Mark's Gospel why, but those who've studied the Scriptures have suggested that delegation was sent from Jerusalem back into Galilee to check Jesus out because of this. They were so offended by this guy. And it's interesting because they actually, when they meet Jesus, they refer to him there in Mark's Gospel as Beelzebul, the son of the devil. They had questions. This was an affront to the Jews, an absolute affront. 
And they were highly offended. They had questions about this man. Who is he? Who does he think? In fact, if you read further in the text this morning, I encourage you to do it when you go home. They question, what, what gives you the right to do this? What sign do you give to treat God's people or to treat God's temple in this way? Well, here's the reason. Here is the reason. Look at verse 16. He says in verse 16 to those who are selling the doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Here's the thing. The reason Jesus did this is because the one place, don't miss this, the one place that the Gentiles were allowed to worship in the temple was in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong for you to sell the animals. It's not wrong for you to change the money. There are suggestions and we know this from the other Gospels, that they were ripping people off. So that was an affront to God because they would, it would be so easy to charge extra for a sacrifice or to add on an exchange rate when you're changing money. But that isn't the particular thing that Jesus is getting upset about. It's that this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which is the only place that the Gentiles could worship. And instead of coming to church and discovering a place where they could worship God, and be in awe of God, they are confronted with a marketplace. And Jesus says, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace, a house of merchandise. And it's meant to be a house of worship. And that's why the disciples remember Psalm 69 verse 9, which says, zeal for thy house has consumed me. That's why Jesus got angry. That's why Jesus overturned the tables. That's why Jesus poured out the money. That's why Jesus lost it. I ask you again the question, how does that make you feel? How does this make you feel about Jesus? Are you uncomfortable with this portrait of our Lord? How does it challenge your view of Jesus? I hope it does. Let me read to you from Peter Scazzaro, talking about emotions. He makes this wonderful point, and I'm sure those of us who've read the scriptures would see this, that our God feels. God is an emotional being and part of being in the image of God is that we reflect emotions. Just listen to some of these Old Testament scriptures. God saw that it was good, very good. God experiences delight. The Lord was grieved. His heart was filled with pain, Genesis 6 tells us. In Exodus 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In Isaiah 42, God says, I cry out, I gasp and pant. Listen to this one, Jeremiah. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In Hosea, he says, this is one of the most powerful passages in the scripture. How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. In fact, it reads, my heart is turned over within in some translations. You read that, you get this overwhelming sense of the great compassion and love of God. He says, "My all my compassion is aroused. Our God is a feeling God and his son Jesus is a feeling Lord. And one of the emotions that Jesus felt and expressed was anger. But it makes us uncomfortable as Christians. My third question, does it challenge your views? Does it raise questions for you about anger? Because I hope it does. I hope this raises 
questions for you about anger and the emotion of anger and how we express it. And some of us try to excuse this by saying, well, it was just a one-off. You know, Jesus didn't do this all the time. It, it, it was just a one-off. And so we excuse it by saying, well, you know, Jesus is probably allowed to do that. He is the Son of God after all. That, that just won't wash. So in answer to that response, that, well, it was a one-off, let me introduce you to the angry Jesus. Now, I freely confess that for all of us, it can be a little confusing when we consider what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. But I want to talk for a few moments about the angry Jesus. And I want to talk for a moment now about what he taught about anger. As far as I know, as far as I'm aware, I know there are times where he confronted anger. But as far as I know, the only passage that we have in the New Testament where Jesus specifically addresses the topic of anger is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. So would you turn there, please, because we need to look at it. And many people, when they are uncomfortable with this idea of an angry Jesus, would like to take this passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, and use this as saying, there you see, Jesus. it's okay for Jesus to be angry. It was all right what he did in the temple because we understand that he had a good reason for it. But we are not allowed to be angry as his followers. Look at Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. There you go. Jesus said it specifically there. You should not get angry with your brother. Is that what Jesus said? Let's keep reading. He goes on. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka. Now this was a term of insult in the days of Jesus. You know what Raka meant? Empty head. Here comes empty head. Or you're so angry with the person. You, if you had a brain, you'd be dangerous. Ever said that? It is a term of contempt. It is pouring out abuse on a person. It is the language of hatred. So you call the person empty head. You shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Now, I'm sure we have all called a person a fool at some times. Don't get too uncomfortable with that. You see, the word actually is moron. Gives us our English word moron. You moron. Again, it is a term of contempt. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying that you should never get angry. What he is saying is that if your anger, look at the context, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is saying is if your anger leads you to despise the person, hate the person, wish the person was dead, that's wrong. Have you ever felt that angry about a person? I have. I'm not going to say that I've actually got to the point of saying I wish you were dead, but I've come, up, come uncomfortably close with some people. I'm just confessing that before you. But in that confession and in acknowledging that, that allows me, that drives me to God to see that that's stuff in me that shouldn't be there and I need to take that to God and, I, and with his grace and help to process it. You see, admitting it, you're halfway there to growth. So that's the first thing that Jesus says about anger. The second thing that he says 
In verse 23, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of here, out of there until you've paid up the last cent. What is Jesus saying now? He's saying if your, hate, if your anger leads you to hold a grudge or to break down a relationship and not seek to repair it or to reconcile it, he said that's wrong too. Ever done that? I have. And then as God has worked in me by his spirit, have sought to reconcile it. Please don't think I'm perfect. I'm just sharing with you something of the journey. These things are a struggle. But you see, this is the process, folk. So this is where God wants to get down deep into our hearts and help us recognise what is there that needs to come out and be brought into the light of day and dealt with properly. But hear what Jesus is saying here about anger. He is saying if your anger leads you to hatred and to bitterness, unforgiveness and wishing the person was dead, that's wrong. But it is not a blanket statement to be read as you should never get angry as a Christian. For goodness sakes, let's be honest, folks. If your kid disobeys you, do you get angry? Or do you say, oh my, he's just expressing himself. If a husband or a wife goes out and has an affair, do you think the injured party should just say, oh my goodness, I'll just forgive? Don't you think there should be some anger there? If some knucklehead cuts you off when you're zipping down the freeway and he nearly causes an accident, do you get angry and just say, oh, he's just doing what he wants? We experience anger in all sorts of ways, but we excuse it. We, we try to have this idea that we are Christians and we don't get angry and it's wrong to get angry and we should never show that stuff. Jesus showed anger and expressed it, but he did it appropriately. And you might be saying, oh, I don't think turning over tables is very appropriate. Maybe we need to turn over a few tables from time to time. Yes, you heard that in church this morning. Maybe I'm not talking about literal tables. <laughs> so, that's what Jesus taught about anger. I said I wanted to introduce you to the angry Jesus. I want you to see this is not a one-off. Jesus expressed anger regularly in the scriptures. Have a look at Mark chapter 3. Let me give you the context. We're not going to read it all through. But go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in the synagogue it is a Sabbath day and a man with a withered hand is in church. And Jesus calls out the man. He says, come down here to the front and hold out your withered hand. And everybody is waiting to see what Jesus does because this is a Sabbath day. And we read there because Jesus knows all eyes are on him. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? You see, that was a no-no. This man has a withered hand. This man has a need. Isn't God a God of compassion and love and grace and healing? But the Sabbath laws said, you don't do that, that's working on the Sabbath. And we read this very, very powerful verse. Jesus knows what's happening. In verse 4 he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? They can't answer it, they're silent, they're, they're, they're dumbstruck. They don't want to disobey their law, but they don't want to deny that they're compassionate people. And therein lies the hardness and the trap of the legalistic heart. It says they kept silent. And listen to this. And after looking around at them with anger, 
Notice the word? Jesus looking around at them with anger. The word means a slow, settle anger. This is not an outburst of anger. This is just like a, a low burn. You know the kind of anger that simmers away? This is the Son of God we're talking about. That's frightening. The anger is simmering away. He looks at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. Now here, this is brilliant. Because that word grieved actually has or means to have compassion. Do you see that Jesus in his anger never loses his love for these religious people who are stuck in their ways? Why is he grieved? Because of the hardness of their heart. That that literally means petrified. Their hearts were like stone. And he is so concerned for their hardness of heart towards God and towards others. He's grieved over it. He's angry, but he's grieved. And he's also grieved because of what that hardness of heart was doing to other people. Jesus got angry regularly. There's another marvellous example of the anger of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 11. Just turn there for a moment, would you please? John's Gospel, chapter 11. This is the occasion when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. You know the story. He comes in the eyes of Mary and Martha too late. But Jesus comes to the tomb and he is confronted by the mourners. The mourners were there to support the family. That was part and parcel of the culture. They would make a horrible din and noise and they'd all be mourning and weeping. And we read this interesting passage, verse 33 of John 11. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Or another way of translating that is that he, was, uh, he groaned in his spirit. Do you know what the word is? It's related to anger. It actually is related, the word was used sometimes to describe the snorting of a horse. You know how a horse will go, so it's a powerful emotion. It says that Jesus groaned in his spirit, and then it goes on, and it says that uh, he was also troubled. Now, as I said, the word has connotations of anger. What is Jesus angry about? This is a funeral. People are grieving. People are mourning. I'll tell you what Jesus is angry about because he sees the mourners. He sees the racket that's being made. Lazarus is dead. He sees what it has done to Martha and Mary and to all these other people. And he sees what death does to people. Why did Jesus come to set us free from sin and death? You get it? And here, right now, he is confronting death in all of its power. And he says, enough! He's angry with it. He came to put an end to death. And one preacher put it this way, B.B. Warfield. Let me read what he said. It is, the, it is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes. But this is incidental. Listen to this. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb. As a champion who prepares for conflict. This is our mighty Jesus. And he's angry, folks. And he goes up against death on this occasion. He goes to the tomb. The raising of Lazarus is the symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What the Apostle John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover us for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe Jesus smites our enemy. Isn't that the Jesus you want to follow? I don't want some namby-pamby, weak Jesus going up and saying, oh, please, Mr. Tomb, would you just move the stone? He's angry, but he channels his anger into so much good. 
There are other examples. Do you know what's interesting about the cleansing of the temple? You will read it in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. John's Gospel has the cleansing of the temple at the first Passover, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark and Luke all have it at the end of his ministry as he goes in after the triumphal entry. Do you know why? Because there were at least two cleansings of the temple. Can you imagine on that third Passover when Jesus goes down to Jerusalem on the final week and he walks into the temple and the money changers are going, oh no, here we go again. Can you imagine that? Jesus regularly expressed anger. What is my aim? I just want you to think more deeply about this son of God, this wonderful son of God we worship, but also think more deeply about his humanity and what that says to us. We often think of Jesus in this way. We have a look at the picture, please. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Maybe sometimes we need to think of him in this way. Angry Jesus, fierce and wild. As I said before, if we saw Jesus responding like that, I don't think we could handle him in the church today. I really don't. But I also want you to think, just hear what I'm saying, think differently about how you express anger. I want you to think differently about it. Anger is a valid emotion, but it must be expressed appropriately. It must be expressed appropriately. So I want to close with this. I've called this anger in me, and I've personalised it. So... If this, this is kind of part of my journey, right? So I've, I've deliberately personalised this about myself. If this helps you, that's great. But here's, when I look at anger, and I've told you some of my story about how I had to confront anger in my younger years and deal with that, and uh, I've seen such a transformation in my life from what I was to who I am now. Not perfect, but I've seen a transformation. Here's what I need to understand about anger and me. I need to understand the type of anger that I'm prone to. New Testament has two words for anger. One is fiery anger. That's the kind of anger that flares up. It it bubbles up and then it just expresses itself. But just as quickly as it bubbles up and is expressed, it subsides again. It's what we call vomiting on people. person blows up. They feel great. Because all the anger has been released. But everybody else is like, what a mess. That's fiery anger. The other is volcanic anger, and interestingly, that is the anger that Jesus expressed when he looked at the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees on the day he was going to heal that man uh, with the withered hand. This is anger that slowly rises. It bubbles beneath the surface, and it rises and it rises and it rises until it comes to a point where there's the straw that breaks the camel's back, and then it just... And it's volcanic because it lets out this long flow. It's long-lasting in how it's expressed. It's not expressed quickly. It goes on for a long time and it's prone to revenge. That is often the anger that is used to describe God, the wrath of God. That's another translation for it. it. tells you something. God will punish sin. Not just because he's put out but because he's been long-suffering and patient. But there will come a time when he will express his wrath. Think about that. So some of us are fiery anger people, some of us are volcanic anger people. I fall into the volcanic anger kind of deal. I have my moments of fiery anger, but I fall into the volcanic anger. I've got to be honest, they're the people you've got to watch out for. 
Wait. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> I give away too much of myself. Okay, so I need to understand the kind of anger. That was very helpful for me in the process of learning how to uh, process my anger properly. Understand the kind of angry person I am. I need to understand that it's okay for me to be angry. That's a big step for most of us, but it's okay to be angry. Anger is a valid emotion. Ephesians 4 verse 26 says, be angry, be angry. Paul, the New Testament, God gives us permission to express and feel anger. We use excuses like, well, Jesus' anger was righteous anger. Mine anger isn't. Uh, I'm not experiencing righteous anger. I gave you a few examples before. Uh, What about things like what are happening in Iran at the moment? Doesn't the injustice that has been poured out on people in that country make you angry? It should. It should. Or a car crash that kills teenagers or whatever it might be or something is hurtful to the set of... It's okay to, to feel anger and to express it. The key is to express our anger properly and to express it in proportion to the issue. So going on a wild rant because someone cuts you off in traffic and continuing it on for the next three hours is probably not an appropriate use of anger. Neither is going on to Facebook and having a full-on rant about everybody either, uh, incidentally. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So anger should be proportionate to the issue. But it's okay to be angry and it should be expressed properly. So here's, as I take that next step, I need to understand that unprocessed anger will then lead me to unhealthy behaviour. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4.26? Be angry but do not sin. Be angry but do not sin. I was a great stuffer with anger because I was taught in the Christian church you should not be angry. So I just used to stuff it down and stuff it down and stuff it down until one day, and because I'm a stuffer and because I'm a volcanic anger person, it just came out. And it would come out at inappropriate times and in ways that weren't good. And so I had to learn to deal with that. I had to learn to express it appropriately. What are inappropriate ways of expressing anger? Fortunately, Paul tells us, jot this passage down, Ephesians 4, 26 to 32. Let me give you the summary. Here are unhealthy ways of expressing anger. One of the unhealthy ways is we leak. Do you leak? I do. If I'm not processing my anger properly, it's like you kind of make the little sarcastic remark about the person or you, know, you drop a hint about what they should or shouldn't be doing. That's leaking your anger. You're angry, but you're not processing it properly, so you just drop hints around the place or you leak. Uh, other inappropriate ways, talking behind a person's back to defame them, holding on to grudges, using foul language, using abusive put-downs or verbal abuse, and I will add their physical abuse, telling lies about someone or slandering them, hateful speech, yelling, any speech which is vicious in character and brings grief to another. The list is all there in Ephesians 4. Read it. Take it to heart. They are unhealthy expressions of anger. So I need to understand if that's the unhealthy, what am I aiming for? I'm aiming to express my anger in healthy ways. Let me read to you this marvellous verse from Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Look at the wisdom of it. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Look at this. He who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. What a powerful verse. So I must learn by this, uh, with the help of God's spirit to bring my anger under his control, to learn how to express it properly, to be able to convey to people, to help them feel from time to time the force of my anger, but not to put them down, to abuse them or anything like that. And I can only do that as I take on board what Scripture says and as I 
submit myself to the Spirit's work in my heart and in my life and seeking his help. So, with what do I finish today? A quote from Peter Scazzaro and then Bruce Banner again. Peter Scazzaro says this in terms of as we process anger in healthy ways. He said, the problem for many of us is that we, when we have a difficult feeling like anger, we unconsciously have a rule against those feelings. We feel defective because we ought not to be feeling the wrong things. We then lie to ourselves, sometimes convincing ourselves that we aren't feeling anything because we don't think we should be feeling it. We shut down our humanity. He said, I never really explored what I was feeling. And as a result, I often said one thing with my words, but my tone of voice, facial expressions and body posture said another. The problem is that when we neglect our most intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and close off an open door through which to know God. We want to be able to process these emotions as Jesus did, and that happens when we accept his invitation into his life and learn from him. How do I control my anger? Well, here's the secret. I'm always angry. <laughs>